Father God, oh, we do just come before you this morning and recognize that this world is 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 big and the problems are large and it seems beyond us. I pray for this congregation that, that whatever you do would begin here and change us and that through through the expression of that we'd be able to make a difference elsewhere. <clears throat> I pray for the men in this congregation that they would be set free from the addiction and the allure of pornography that grips so many of them for women that are gripped by pornography. Father, I just pray that you would give this community relief from the things that enslave us and keep us from being able to know the joy that you would have us know, the things that would keep us from running the race you would have us run, the things that keep us from being able to help others because we ourselves are, are enslaved and ensnared. And so, Father, I just pray that you would set the people of this congregation free and that you would release them. In Christ's name, amen. I've got a book here, and it's called um, Unspeakable. And uh, this book here ruined my life. And, and I mean that. Uh, I read this book about two and a half months ago. And uh, I read it all in one evening. And I finished it by about midnight. Uh, and it has been known to be the case. Um, I was very rash by about midnight of that night. I was so disturbed in my soul. I was so grieved. I was so... Enraged, I was so uh, everything that I jumped up to my computer and rashly started thinking that that I had to do everything in the world right there at that moment. And so I about tried to send off an email to the whole church at midnight that night, you know, in this like heated kind of state. And I said, "Oh no, I can't do that. Well, I could buy a hundred copies of this book and hand it out this Sunday." Well, no, it's a little rash. And then I started thinking of these grand vows and things I could do in my own life. And, and, and it was just kind of in this frantic, I have to do something state of mind and felt like God finally just said, Ken, settle down. Um, it's not the right time. It's not the right place. Um, but it's, it's the emotions that led me when Courtney and Kim and I were talking about the Human Rights Sunday for us to together kind of make this decision that instead of doing a Human Rights Sunday, we needed to do a Human Rights Series. And my one goal for this whole series would be that, that other people would read this book. We've got 40 copies of this book out there. Um, but now let me go back to what I was saying. This book ruined my life. And so if you go read this book, I'm not saying go read this book. It's a great novel. It's, it's something you're going to recommend to your friends. I'm saying go read this book and die. Go, go read this book and have your dreams be shattered. Go read this book so that all the things that you'd hoped for and longed for and planned for will, will be just meaningless waste to you. Um, if you dare, go read this book and have it ruin your life. And what I mean by ruin my life is simply this. If you've ever sat at a dinner and <clears throat> you're eating and it's this great meal or you're looking forward to this great meal and there's the smell and there's the sights and there's the environment and you're excited and it's right there and it's in front of you and you're planning on it and then all of a sudden somebody shares information that ruins your appetite. 
Have you ever had that happen? You know, you're about to take the bite and someone shares a story about, you know, vomiting or something else and you're just like, okay, you just ruined my dinner. My appetite's gone. And, uh, and that's what this book did for me. I, I've got my life in front of me. I've got my plans. I've got my hopes. I've got my dreams. It's all there. It looks good. It's appetizing. I desire it. I'm planning for it. I'm moving towards it. And the information in this book soured my stomach. And those plans and those hopes and those dreams, I no longer have the appetite for that. Because that's what I mean by ruined my life. And um, here's the interesting thing. The book is on sex slavery, the fastest growing crime in the world. And I realized in reading it that, just like I said last week, um, that I'm a hypocrite. And so this whole series for me is kind of becoming this confession of a hypocrite. Um, Isn't that wonderful? And here's my hypocrisy. Um, Slavery is something we're familiar with in America. It's in every history book. We talk about it all the time. It's a part of our past as a society. And we look at past leaders, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, and, and we look down our noses at them and we say, yeah, you did a lot of noble things, but you had the opportunity to stand up to slavery and you chose not to. You, you could have done something about this, this evil thing called slavery um, and you chickened out. And so we can't respect you anymore. In hindsight, looking back, it, it, that one negative thing outweighs all the good and we can't respect you anymore. And we look at our forefathers and we feel that way. We talk that way. We think that way. You with me? And what I've realized is I look at them because they didn't do something that would have been amazingly difficult to do, but they chickened out. They should have done it anyways. And I put myself in this guarded position where I'm throwing stones and rocks and I don't realize that uh, I have a greater sin that I'm carrying. Or the little speck in their eye that I, I see is nothing compared to the log in my eye. Now here's the deal, when those men at the height, not even those early American fathers, but at the height, right before the Civil War, there was 3,900,000 slaves. In the world today, there are 27 million slaves. More than any other time in the history of the world. And because of globalization, because of the internet, because of travel, it's easier for me to do something about that slavery than it would have been for somebody in Connecticut to do something about the slavery in the South pre-Civil War. It would have taken them two weeks just to travel to the South. You, You understand what I'm saying? It would take me one day to get to Cambodia or to Africa. Or to drive to San Francisco where there are women right now being held captive as sex slaves in America. Or to drive down to San Diego right across the border where women who don't speak the language, have their papers taken, are are scared, beaten, coerced, threatened into serving in this capacity um, because there's no one to talk to, there's no help. I could just drive down to San Diego. So I'm a hypocrite. I don't know about you. This isn't about you. I don't know where you're at, but I am. 
It's easy for me to talk about the founding fathers. It's not easy for me to realize that um, if I really meant that, that they should have done something, then I should be living out a different life than I've been living. If I'm going to be authentic, honest, genuine. There are 600,000 to 800,000 people trafficked across international borders every single year. Today's my birthday. I just turned 35 today. Okay? You remember your last birthday? Since your last birthday, almost a million women and young girls have been trafficked across international borders. As a commodity, how do they how do they get controlled? Well, they get controlled the same way you would control an animal. The threat of pain and fear of punishment. 50% of them are children. And 14,500 of those are trafficked into the U.S. every single year. Well, why the U.S.? Um, Because there's money in it. And if there's money in it, um, the United States is going to have their hand in it. It's just that simple. And so we have the wonderful distinction of being at the front end of this in a lot of ways. Um, how could I be, how, how could I get two master's degrees at a seminary and never once hear the, the, the phrase sex slavery? I mean, seriously, how could I be seven years at a seminary over a decade in ministry and never hear the phrase human trafficking? That's a question I'm asking myself. Is Christianity just about going down to the the Christian bookstore and buying the latest Jeremy Camp CD? I mean, is that really what it's about? I mean, that's what I'm struggling with. How did I spend a decade entrusting myself to the Christian church and never once hear about the fastest growing crime in the world, the largest organized crime in the world that affects young children and young girls to the to the magnitude that it does. How could I not even hear about it? Because maybe, maybe we're, we're caring about um, all the wrong things. I'm going to read some things. I am Tiola. Tiola, a young Albanian girl, was 13 when she started dating 21-year-old Neelan. Charming and attentive, Tiola quickly said yes when Neelan asked her to marry him only weeks into their relationship. After a short civil wedding, they immediately left for Italy, where he claimed to have cousins who could get him a job. Arriving in Italy, Teola's life changed forever. Neelan locked her in a hotel room and left her. She never saw him again. She's 13. She remembers what happened next. A few hours later, a group of men entered the room and began to yell at me and beat me. Each one of them took their turn with me. One would hold me down while the others raped me. The leader told Teola that Dylan had sold her to them for $250. He said that I had to obey him or else I would be killed. And for seven days, Teola was beaten and raped and raped again. Then her traffickers sold her a second time to someone whose face she never saw. He beat my head so badly I could not see out of my eyes for two days. 
Have you ever like been hit with something in your head, a solid object so hard? You know what that feels like, that dull thud? You know, and your stomach kind of turns off. I guarantee you none of you have lost your sight for two days. She was told if she didn't work as a prostitute, her mother and sister in Albania would be raped and killed. Tula was forced to submit to prostitution until police raided the brothel she was in. And then she was deported by Italian authorities back to Albania. Colin Powell says this, The more you learn about how the most innocent and vulnerable among us are savaged by these crimes, the more impossible it becomes to look the other way. Women and girls as young as six years old are being trafficked into commercial sexual exploitation. A trafficker recruited Nina, a 19-year-old from southeastern Europe, to work as a waitress. He recruited her, promised her a job, posted it, um, explained it to her, sold her on it, got her excited, motivated her to be a waitress. But then he raped, beat, and drugged her, forcing her into prostitution. After a daring escape, her trafficker hunted her down and kidnapped her. Taken into custody during a police raid, Nina agreed to be a witness against her trafficker. The police officer assigned to protect her, gave away her location, and her trafficker threatened her life. At the trial, she was forced to sit next to her traffickers and was insulted and humiliated by the judge and defense counsel. Her pimps were found guilty but released on appeal. For her own survival, Nina has fled to another country and assumed a new identity. That's from Secretary of State Colin Powell telling that story. In Middle Eastern countries, if a woman escapes, it's a crime to be photographed naked. It's a crime to have been in a brothel. And so if they escape the brothel, you know what happens? They get sent to prison. There's a story in here of a woman that escaped, because she, but because she didn't have her paperwork anymore, because her traffickers trafficked her into her country, she was found guilty of being in the country illegally and was put into jail for two years. I am Masha. Masha was born in uh, southern Russia, and when she was four years old, her mother took her a knife and stabbed her in the back of her neck during a drinking binge. With no father, Masha was sent to live in an orphanage. It was a sad and desperate existence, but one day, a divorced 41-year-old American came to the orphanage and wanted to adopt her. Matthew Mancuso found Masha through an adoption agency in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. He said he wanted to adopt a young Caucasian girl. And he picked up Masha from a videotape sent to him by the adoption agency. And at first, Mancuso was kind and bought Masha gifts. The nightmare began when Masha flew home with Mancuso to his modest middle-class house near Pittsburgh. When it was time for bed on her first night in America, he didn't send her to her room. He told her to get in bed with him. He wasn't wearing any clothes. In the first couple of nights, he touched my legs and chest, and then he started touching my private parts, Masha recalls. A few days later, he started raping her repeatedly. Then he started taking sexually explicit photographs of her. I'd make myself think of other things when it was happening, she said. He'd tell me not to tell anyone, 
or, or else something bad would happen, Masha says. He wouldn't tell me what it would be, but he'd just say something bad would happen. So I just didn't tell anyone because I was afraid. Masha ended up being one of the most photographed child pornography instances on the internet to where authorities finally cracked down on it trying to figure out how come this girl's picture was showing up all over the internet and they began to isolate the room in the back of where she was being photographed and they would digitally remove her body and they would show it around and they, they soon found out where the pictures had been taken and do you, do you want to know where they were taken? At a Disneyland hotel. And they finally tracked this man down and he had adopted her legally from Russia um, and was living in Pittsburgh. And, and so this is in the United States. The number of children involved in Cambodian prostitution is around 30,000. There's a sex tourism, tourism industry And this is what Colin Powell says. It's the worst kind of human exploitation imaginable. Can you imagine young children being used as sexual slaves for predators? It is a sin against humanity. It is the most horrendous crime. Do you know why they traffic these girls? They traffic them across an international border for this reason. Because that way they won't speak the language they won't know the culture, and they won't know anybody. So that when they're in a room locked up um, and shed tears, nobody will see those tears. And so when they sit there crying after they've been used 10 times a day by men, um, when they, they, they let those cries out, there will be nobody there to hear those cries. They take young girls and traffic them so that they will be isolated and completely alone and without hope so that they will be compliant. I have three daughters. And the thought of one of my girls being somewhere held captive, beaten and raped so that she would be submissive to this sex slave trade is is just... Utterly, I I don't know how to I don't know how to get my mind around it. And I think that God is up there, and it's the craziest thing because He sees those tears, and He hears those cries, and then He just kind of because God is a, a spiritual being, and then He flies over to America <clears throat> and sits in on our small groups where we're debating about the musical styles that we play in church. And that we'll get so enraged about this happening at church. And I don't like that. It didn't used to be like that at our church. Um, now it's changed. And, and it's changed. I don't know if I'm okay with that anymore. And, and we have our petty little arguments and our petty little disagreements. And God is watching this. And at the same time, He's hearing the cries from millions of children who are helpless. And He's looking at us and He's saying, What in the world are you doing to help the people of the world? Do you not get it? Have you not read my scripture? Have you not thought this thing through? Have you not opened up your ears? Have you not loved? 
And so um, here's the question I think that comes up. And the question is this. What does this have to do with church? Am I using the word rape and sex slavery? Um, Those are awkward things to talk about in a church service. I think the question comes up, what does this have to do with a church service? And and here is, the in my mind, um, the worst part of this whole thing is that that question actually seems like a question we want an answer to. It doesn't strike us as, as the most ridiculous question ever asked. The question, why would we talk about this in a church service? Oh, that's a, well, I wonder what the answer is going to be. Probably be a good answer, but I'm, I'm still curious to hear the answer. The question, why would we talk about this, is the most ridiculous question that we could ask if we really understand what it is we're talking about and who our God is. It's not the right question. I went to this. I, li- I went to college at Clemson, in South Carolina, and I remember going in and having lunch at this pastor's house. And his daughter was a friend of mine at school. She took me to lunch. It's a small town in in South Carolina, and went to his church. Then went to his home for lunch. And at the table after church at lunch, he proceeded to try and tell me um, that the the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery, nothing at all, and that that was a lie. And I'm, I'm not an idiot. You know, history has always been one of my favorite subjects. And in the South, what they'll do is say, civil war is absolutely about states' rights. And so I looked at him and I said, okay, it was about states' rights, but what did you want to have the right to do? What caused the disagreement about your rights? Saying that, that the civil war had nothing to do with slavery is just ridiculous. But this man was just separating himself out from that and treating it like like this weird topic that just had no relevance to anything and, and he was just treating it like that. Why would we talk about this stuff in church? It has nothing to do with my life or my, my musical preferences for worship. And I was appalled and I never talked to that pastor again. And I went to Charleston, South Carolina one time and in Charleston, South Carolina, there's a flea market right there um, where the harbor is, and, and the flea market is right on top of where they used to sell the slaves. And you got these cobblestone kind of street areas, and you can still see in, in the cobblestones where they built in the metal bars that they would shackle the slaves to while they were holding them or while they were selling them and auctioning them. And these things become common to us or distant to us. We look at it and think, well, that's, that's a bygone era, or what does that really have to do with me today, right now? And it has nothing to do with us if we're willing to be hypocritical. If we're willing to just continue to look down our noses at our, our early founding fathers and those that engaged in the slave trade back then or allowed it to take place, if we're willing to just look down our noses at them then we can only be consistent if we're willing to also be hypocritical. Because we're treating the things that are going on today, right here, right now, in our own time, in our own surroundings, the same way that our early founding fathers treated slavery in their day. And if we're not willing to be hypocritical, 
then we have to do something. Why talk about this in church? Um, because sometimes we need to be shocked. Sometimes it, it needs to hit us, and it needs to hit us hard. Do you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? And they showed the landing on the, on the Normandy beaches in such a graphic way. And it was kind of it broke the ice for a lot of movies thereafter. But for the first time, the horrors of that, at least to my generation, kind of came across. And it wasn't this glorious thing anymore where young boys are like, oh, I wish I could have been a part of that and stormed the beaches and helped fight for my country and liberate it. They began to realize it was horrendous. And the men who lived through that and the men who went through it are heroes because it was something horrendous. And that movie shocked us. And sometimes we need to be shocked. Turn to Judges with me. Judges chapter 19. And it goes Joshua, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. <clears throat> Judges chapter 19. And, and here's the story. A guy marries a gal and it uses the word concubine and wife interchangeably. Um, he's... And so don't get hung up on that, okay? He's got this gal. They're going to travel back to the land of Israel. And he finally leaves. And the interesting thing is, is the master replies in verse 12, we won't go to an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah, he added. And so he's traveling, things aren't that safe, and he's like, I'm not going to stop in some foreign town. I'm going to continue on till I reach our people in Israel, Israelite people. That's where we're going to go, that's where we're going to stay. And he reaches there. He gets there to a town of the clan of Benjamin. And that evening an old man from the hill country who is living in that town comes And he finds the traveler in the city square, which was the tradition. You go to the city square, you sit there, somebody's going to see you, and they're going to take you into their house. Okay? I mean, there's no, like, Motel 6. So he sits there, someone, oh, you know, uh, come, you know, enjoy my hospitality. Takes him into his house. Now, here's the crazy thing. I'll skip down. Verse 22. Now, while they were enjoying themselves some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. And later on, it says that their intent was to kill him too. This is a pretty big deal. They're going to take this guy, have their way, kill him, murder him, um, this traveler. And the owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, No, my friends, don't be so vile. This man is my guest. Don't do this disgraceful thing. It goes on and eventually he says, here's my virgin daughter and this other man's concubine. I'll bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. Okay, now before we think, oh, this is one more Old Testament version of, or ancient society version of um, um, treating women like dirt, you got to understand this is a lose-lose situation. If you close your eyes and you're in a dusty, 
clay-walled building that's lit only by candlelight, and there are more men outside than you inside, and they're beating on the house, and they're yelling, and you're caught up in this moment, and they want to kill people, and you're threatened, and you're lost, and it's urgent, and it's immediate, and you don't know what to do, and there is no good answer. You're put in this situation. You're trapped. What do you do? This man does this. What would you do? I don't know. That's a crazy situation. And let's not sterilize it because it's just two little verses. And so this man in this life and death situation hands out the women. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. So finally he just sends the woman outside. It's a bad situation, but at least maybe nobody will die. That's all I can think that he's thinking. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, and she f- and fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. And when her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Come on, let's go. And there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey, and he set out for home. She was dead. Uh, Verse 29. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts, because there's 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent them into all the areas of Israel. And everyone who saw it said, Such a thing has never been seen or done not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it, consider it, tell us what to do. Very next verse, Then all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out as one man and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. All the Israelites gather. They end up going down and fighting against the Benjamites. And over 100,000 people die in that war that ensues. Over 100,000 people give their life because the Israelites come together and say, what just took place here ought not happen. It is so disturbing. It is so vile. It is so disgraceful. It is so something that we cannot allow to happen that they go to war and a 100,000 people give their lives in trying to reconcile this problem. And that's the story of judges, right? Things go bad, God raises up a judge, brings the people back. Things deteriorate again, God raises up a judge, brings things back. But the the people would continue to, to descend into wickedness. And at this point in time, they look and see what was done with this woman who was raped to death And they head out for war against this clan, the Benjamites, one of their own people. And over 100,000 men die. That passage of scripture, right there, is the number one passage of scripture that is used when, when people try to get the Bible thrown out of school libraries. Did you know that? That passage of scripture right there is one of the most awkward passages in Scripture, and it's what's used when people try to get the Bible thrown out of school libraries. 
And I thought I would never, ever teach from it. Why would I? Of, of all of Scripture, why would I ever teach from that passage? Um, until I read this book over here. And we've got 40 copies of it, and I dare you to ruin your life. And when I read that book, I realized, I thought of my three daughters, and I realized that some of the things that are going on in this world that we have the power to influence are of such a nature. They're they're so vile. These things ought not be done. That the Christian church somehow needs to be shocked so that we would rally like the Israelites rallied. That we'd be willing to pay the cost. A hundred thousand men died. That we'd be willing to pay the cost to actually go and try to do something about it, stop it and change it. Now here's the interesting thing. Ninety dollars is the average cost of a human slave around the world. And in India you can free a whole family in slavery for $250. Well, I'm not in India. How do I do that, Ken? I'm not in India. Well, we've got a table right outside from, from Dave Rogers and Ransomware, and they are in India. And the clothing on that table is from women who have been bought out of brothels that they didn't want to be in. You're going to hear the whole story next week from Dave Rogers. There's other organizations like International Justice Mission and, and on and on and on and on. This book, the guy who wrote it has a ministry called Ahava and it's over there in New England and he was going to fly out and be with us next week too and we couldn't get the plane tickets to work out. But he's going to fly out in the spring and be with us. Ahava is Hebrew for love. His tagline is, we're their last best hope. Would we lose 100,000 men? We lost 600,000 men to end slavery in the Civil War. Would we spend money to stop it now? Would we make our life about it now? Would we, would be, would we, I mean, what would we do? Let's just turn to one more verse if, if we could. Matthew chapter 20, verse 24 through 26. Matthew chapter 20, verses 24 through 26. Now, Jesus' disciples are being idiots, and they're fighting about who's the greatest. They're arguing about, is Jeremy Camp better or is Third Day better? They're being stupid. I mean, they're really being stupid. And Jesus says this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. It's all about status and position and power and hierarchy and all that stuff. Climbing the ladder. You idiots. Okay, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you 
must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came, lived flesh and blood, just like I've got right now, and he did it not to be waited on, pampered, served, but to be a slave for other people and to spend himself to such a high degree that he would ransom them out of of the slavery that they were in, spiritual, emotional, all of it. And he's saying, um, if you don't want to be an idiot, don't be like the rest of the world, guys. Be like me. It doesn't revolve around you. It's not about me. Be a slave. Give your life as a ransom. Um, That's Christianity. I just heard a a talk by Francis Chan, and I thought it was amazing. He had this life-changing experience. He's a pastor in Simi Valley, and and he looked at his wife one night in bed and said to his wife, you know what, If if Jesus had a church in Simi Valley my church would be bigger. And his wife thought he was being like, you know, crazy, heretical. How could you say such things? You know, Jesus is king. You know, how could you be so arrogant as to say your church would be bigger? He goes, no, 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 you're getting me wrong. If Jesus had a church in Simi Valley, my church would be bigger because he would demand more of people than I do and they would leave his church and come to my church. He goes, Jesus would ask for a commitment from them that is so great that they would leave his church and come to my church. I would have a bigger church. And that rocked him to the core. And he's kind of got on this completely radical deal. He's got a church with millions of dollars and all these people. And he's doing the exact opposite of what all the other mega churches are doing. And he's taking that money and he's saying, instead of building a $60 million building, let's build an amphitheater just on grass. And let's see what we can do with this money to change the world, to help bring girls out of sex slavery, to help the orphans and the, the women without their husbands there. Like we sang in the song, the widows. And I look at that and I'm saying, yes, that tastes good. It passes the taste test, the smell test. That's the real thing. That's real Christianity. That's a pastor who's doing it right. It doesn't matter if his church grows. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if that that amphitheater gets rained out and doesn't work he is trying to do it right it's not about us it's about the world it's about being submissive it's about being humble it's about serving like christ served and giving our life our time our energy our money maybe even some of those dreams or our big screen tvs and getting rid of those things so that we can truly be a ransom for others that we don't hoard it, we don't make it about ourselves, that we don't just look in our narrow paradigm, but we're always striving. We go to bed striving. We wake up striving. What can I do? What can I influence others to do? What is left that, that I a rock that I haven't left that's unturned? And there's something underneath there, and i got to find it, this little 
glimmer of hope or a connection or a network or a person that I can link up with? And how can I be smart about this? Because my whole life, like an arrow, is pointed in one direction about one thing, and that's it. To be a ransom for others. To serve my God. To follow my master. To be like my savior. And I love it when I see a pastor or a church that gets that and they don't care about public opinion anymore. And they don't care about status. They don't care about the other things. We're about to watch a video. At the end of this video, these guys are going to come up and sing a song for us. And it's written by the band Ten Shekel Shirt. And this band had the opportunity to go and buy a girl out of a brothel, a young woman who was a sex slave. And the song is written about her and her new life and the new opportunities that were afforded to her. And it's an amazing song. And I hope you'll just listen to the lyrics and realize that we can be a ransom for others. We're going to watch this movie now, then the offering. Well, I guess you guys can just put the cards on the way out because it's the 8 o'clock service. So. <laughs> 